Another episode of the Jackman Show. I am your host, Paul Prescott. I am here, as you can see, with the great young Kale. How are you doing, Kale? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, wasn't exactly the plan to be here today, but that's uh, true. Happy to just jump in for a little bit, and then I'm going to leave and uh, actually be replaced by the actual co-host. Which right. I think We're everyone have a will surprise, be surprise. Surprise co-hosts. Blast from the past coming soon. So stick <laughs> around for that. Um, but great to have Kale here, as always, a great producer. Um, but this is going to be a really great show I'm excited about. We're going to have an interview of Noam Chomsky soon, talking about where we're at 20 years after 9-11 and the war on terror. We're, before that, going to also have Jenny Brown to talk about the latest abortion ban on te- in Texas. So stick around for that. And before we get to all that, though, or go ahead, Kale. Oh, I just want to say uh, the interview is pre-recorded. Sorry. Um, but it's actually, it's really fantastic. Um, I know Chomsky does the rounds quite a bit that he does a lot of interviews these days and we're all the better off for it, uh, that he's still able to share so much wisdom and, um, kind of both like from his actual, like time being on the left and being, uh, you know, among the anti-war movement, but also just being one of the great, uh, political thinkers of our age and our day that just consume so much information constantly, um, and I'm actually, I'm, you know, I'm not a part of the interview technically. Uh, I'm, I am very proud of this one that I think, uh, people, there's a lot to, to kind of take out of what he's saying. Um, so stick around for that. Yeah. But, I mean, someone we kind of take for granted on the left now, he's been around so long. And I mean, there's so many people, including myself that kind of entered left politics through surprisingly watching YouTube videos of Chomsky or reading his writings, um, you know, he's not exactly like the most flashiest speaker, but I think because his ideas are so compelling, that's why so many of us are drawn to it. Um, so definitely excited about that. Um, but before we get to our guests, I want to talk about something that, um, I mean, two related but different things that are in the news today. So one of them is that today, or starting yesterday, unemployment benefits um, were stopped for most Americans. And also, we also got the latest jobs numbers that do not look good for the month of August. And so I don't know if it's, this is whether, you know, symbolic or ironic or tragic. But yesterday on Labor Day, unemployment benefits related to COVID-19, the extra $300 a week, were cut across the entire country. 9.2 million people were receiving benefits from either the Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation Program or the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. But it affects way more than 9.2 million people. According to the census data, the average household that was receiving unemployment benefits had 3.8 members in it. So 35 million people in total live in households that will no longer be receiving unemployment benefits as of today. Economists and others in the Biden administration are justifying these cuts by pointing to strong job growth and recovery over the last few months. But something strange is happening in the economy right now. There are reportedly 10 million job openings, but still almost 9 million people unemployed. For some, the obvious answer is that unemployment benefits kept people who could have easily found a job from going back to work. But that theory misses the real dynamics of what's going on here. 
we can look at the 20 states that cut the extra $300 a week in unemployment benefits back in June. These states had the same pace of hiring as the other states that kept benefits until now. There are a combination of factors at work here. Uh, one that has gotten a lot of coverage, even in the mainstream media, is the way the pandemic has made many workers rethink their careers. So for many people, their lives were kind of put on pause by COVID. May, maybe many reflected that it's simply not worth risking their lives to go back to work to a terrible job with bad pay and benefits. Maybe they enjoyed the extra time they got with their family during the pandemic and decided they need a job that could keep that in place. Though it's hard to precisely quantify this dynamic, there is some data that can give us a picture. A recent article in the Washington Post showed that resignations are the highest on record, up 13% over pre-pandemic levels. There are 4.9 million more people who aren't working or looking for work than there were before the pandemic. There's a surge in retirements, with 3.6 million people retiring during the pandemic, or more than 2 million more than expected. And there's been a boost in entrepreneurship that has caused the biggest jump in years in new business applications. There are also signs that workers have had enough of incredibly demanding jobs that were pushed to the brink because of COVID-19. Take healthcare workers and teachers. These two occupations were already difficult before COVID and often are not given proper support and respect. In recent months, healthcare workers and educators have quit their jobs at the highest rate on record, going back to 2002. And while nurses and teachers have been always underpaid, most of them certainly won't be eager to jump into new jobs paying $12 an hour. But having said all this, it's simply not true that there aren't millions of people out there actively looking for work and can't find them. From the same Washington Post article, uh, this story of a warehouse worker I think is particularly revealing and worth quoting at length. So the article says, while companies say they are struggling to find workers, many unemployed say that they are having trouble getting hired especially if they haven't worked for a year. Forklift driver uh, Brandon Harvey and his wife used to work in a warehouse outside Atlanta that closed during the pandemic and never reopened. Harvey, who's 33, searched for a job for months, looking online and driving around South Fulton. He submitted countless applications but rarely got calls back. He said, I fear that employers are pretty hesitant to give you an opportunity right now if you haven't worked in a while, Harvey said over the summer when his search seemed especially frustrating. Goes on, Harvey and his wife fell behind on rent. Their landlord wanted to evict them. They struggled to stay positive in front of their two kids, a toddler and a 13-year-old. Harvey saw plenty of $10 and $12 an hour jobs all spring and summer, but it wouldn't be enough for his family to survive. He made $17 an hour before the pandemic. I definitely wasn't going to work for $10 or $12 an hour. That wasn't going to do anything, Harvey said. And this encapsulates so much of what is wrong and what is driving current unemployment issues. Yes, there are many businesses out there that want to and need to hire people, but it would be incorrect and frankly naive to assume that as a whole, employers should be relied on to fully solve the issue of employment. They hold most of the cards and they want to bring workers back on their own terms. Yes, some employers are offering incentives for workers to come back, including better pay and benefits, the average pay of workers has actually gone up 2.8% in the past five months, which is the fastest rate of increase, believe it or not, since 1981. But it's still not happening on a broad enough scale or in a coordinated way to get at the heart of the issue. And this seems like a perfect time for congressional Democrats and the president to force the issue on $15 an hour minimum wage with federal subsidies for small businesses that truly could not pay that. 
But instead, the strategy has been to force working people into enough misery so that they will be forced to accept what employers are willing to give. But there's already evidence that this won't work, even on its own terms. We saw in June when 20 states eliminated the extra $300 a week in unemployment benefits, these states had virtually the same pace of hiring as other states that kept these extra benefits. Some companies have used this time to accelerate automation and cost-cutting that has reduced the need for the workers. And there is also something particularly bad about the timing of this decision to cut unemployment benefits. We are in the midst of another COVID-19 surge, with hospitalizations at their highest since late last January. This, of course, is and will continue to have an effect on the economy. In August, only 235,000 jobs were added, and that headline is making the rounds today. We can only predict that this would get worse as people's purchasing power declines without the extra income of unemployment benefits. Cutting unemployment benefits cannot hide or somehow evade the structural problems in our economy. Instead, the federal government seeing its role as an institution that can create quality jobs in the form of a jobs guarantee or massive public works project, it is only playing a role in forcing working people back into the hands of the market. As we've seen before, and as we continue to see, this just simply doesn't work. Um, and Kale, what are your thoughts here? This is making the news rounds again. You know, this issue has come up before, but I think this kind of reminds me, you know, the recent conversation we had with Luke Savage about liberals, where I feel like they're refusing to accept that there are real structural issues in the economy, you know, putting COVID aside, and they really feel like, you know, we could just get back to the old economy and that would have been fine. But I think they're missing the point. Yeah, no, totally. And I'm really glad you covered this. I think I think the allusion to uh, uh, Luke Savage's interview makes a lot of sense. And part of, I think, part of the problem is just that uh, we're living through two things simultaneously. I mean, we're living through a lot of things, but um, two things worth kind of connecting mentally the like the global pandemic, um, where, as you know, as we all know, like it's it's reshaped a lot of how work actually uh, looks and and how people go into work, what people do for work. Um, But at the same time, it's also meant uh, we're in a period where capital just has so much control um, with no real challenge from anything. Uh, There is no like strong militant labor movement that can uh, force employers to come to some agreement over like these very like basic and necessary concerns that workers have. And then the state is also not in a position to actually uh, discipline capitalists in any way of, of coming down and saying, sorry, you're just going to have to deal with this new arrangement whereby we actually are going to look out for working people. Um, and that has, there's a number of reasons for that. Part of that is just like the, um, the bottlenecks that have happened in Congress because of the, the particular, uh, you know, electoral outcomes and, you know, having people like Manchin and Cinema. But it's also just the fact that uh, at this point, like there, you know, capital can get away with almost anything in the sense that like no one, no one has anything that can discipline them. Uh, whereas uh, capital can, of course, always come back and discipline politicians uh, or, you know, and they obviously every single day discipline their workers to, right. you know, to tell them, you know, there's, don't even try fighting back. It's not worth it. Um and obviously, I, I don't mean to be fatalist about this. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily always going to be like this, but we are stuck in like 
there's this this dual grinding action happening between yeah. the the pandemic making it like that much more strenuous on on working people mm-hmm. and then you know just there is no you know no one's coming in to to save us all from the power of capital not even i mean it's it's truly a free for all where you know it's it's capital against capital and and we're all just you know getting you know we're just the the ones getting hit in the crossfire Right. Uh, and and what's kind of interesting about this, in a way, you know, workers have slightly more leverage right now. I mean, and you're hearing some people talk about this, although having said that, I, I really bristle when I've heard this thing called a low key general strike, um, really bristle at that. But, you know, there there is a little bit of a point here that, that you know, like workers have a little bit of leverage when there's a shortage. And again, I cited the figure that actually many employers are like offering slightly better wages, better benefits. But, you know, I think it is an open question of like how much can people beyond in their individual situations take advantage of this? Um, you know, maybe in certain sectors, like some of the already heavily unionized sectors are also experiencing shortages. Some of the non-union sectors are, you know, maybe this would spur more organizing in, in certain industries where they have a little bit of leverage. But, you know, I don't we shouldn't expect that it's automatically going to translate to workers having more power or you know, being able to take advantage of this like temporary leverage. Um, but, you know, I that that's something to be seen in the future. But, you know, it, it's pretty clear that Democrats were kind of banking on, all right, we're going to get through COVID quickly, fairly mm-hmm. quickly. Everything's going to rebound. Now things are getting dicey, you know, that, that this thing is lingering. It's having effects on the economy. We're seeing Biden's approval numbers going down. Not that we should like get too lost in the horse race. Um, but, you know, I think now it's like things are, getting dicier again for them. Yeah. And it's, I think it's worth just at any chance we can to restate the fact that, um, you know, like there's a, there's a very real economic reason why employers won't just tolerate the state coming in and offering, you know, extra employment that it's, um, it's not the, the, the case that employers are, you know, can operate over here on one side and, um, do what they want with their employees uh, and then let the state, uh, you know, over here on the other side, uh, start employing people um, because from their, their point of view, it ends up becoming uh, kind of a glut on the system. It actually, it gums up competition for them um, for uh, especially uh, competition amongst workers, uh, which they may not think of it in these specific direct terms, but this is effectively like what, capitalists, what corporations are, are worried about is uh, is their employees having greater structural leverage because there's now a new offering uh, available to them where they don't have to accept the, you know, below starvation wages. They don't have to accept the, like, cruel and inhumane working conditions because now there's another option where they can all, you know, go over to, uh, you know, state employment that is, in fact, you know, and this is this would have to be enacted in such a way, but right. is ideally enacted in a way where uh, it actually is providing a living wage uh, that is providing safe working conditions and ideally should have uh, greater worker power and control within the workplace. Um, yeah. And if that's if that exists over here, uh, it, it's going to force capitalists to make greater concessions to their own employees. And so they're never going to come out in favor of a jobs guarantee or uh, or any just even any kind of uh, federal employment. It's it's just antithetical to their objective of making profits. 
Right. Yeah. And, and that point you raised, you know, something I, I, I said about this, the times cry out for a federal job guarantee. And the um, economist and writer Pavlina Cherneva has written a lot about, you know, how a federal job guarantee can work. And one of the benefits, again, is what you said is it would actually help pull up the standards in the private sector. Um, this is actually something that unions do as well. You know, many employers, you know, they make a calculation. Well, we want to prevent the union in order to do that. Um, you know, we're going to raise wages a little bit because we know other unions in this region have higher wages. So it helps bring everybody up. But this kind of also points to the limits, you know, all this talk about Biden and how he kind of surprised us a little bit early with his, you know, big spending. But I think it kind of shows the limits of like, you know, they really weren't going to ever consider going much beyond the the short term emergency spending. You know, I think even the decision that, you know, we just need to cut unemployment benefits off now, even if COVID is resurging, it doesn't matter. You know, I think just shows that they are holding strong to that ideolo- uh, ideology that they have around this. Um, and, you know, they I don't think they ever plan to, to go that much further in terms of intervening in capital in any way. I, I want to give uh, maybe a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and say that it seemed like when the Biden administration came in, there was some internal within the administration, some push towards uh, kind of some revival of, of welfare state programs of, of taking care of those people that have been so like devastatingly hit or uh, just like their lives destroyed from, you know, the pandemic or or made that much more strenuous. And I I do think there was an effort um, and, and maybe there wasn't, but like just for the sake of argument, let's say there was, uh, it just speaks to the to like the the uh, composition of power in the country that like even when you have you know uh, Democrats in control of the government, even when it seems like the the you know executive branch is is willing to move in that direction, where Biden is you know saying you know I support the Pro Act and would sign the Pro Act if it came on my desk, um, business even in somewhat of a more disorganized uh, position right now where you know corporations and capitalists aren't super organized at the moment in the way that they have been in the past, they can still successfully shut down these efforts. And, and, and that's where, you know, we, we talked to Sirota the other day. I mean, like um, they're doing everything they can to, to rip apart the, the infrastructure bill. So it's just those things that would like be useful and beneficial to them making a profit and nothing else, nothing to do with, you know, uh, taking care of workers, you know, living standards or, um, you know, uh, the infrastructure that, you know, provides, they, I hate the way that they've like, they've like put this as like, there's the, you know, the, the serious infrastructure over here. And then there's kind of like this, this soft social infrastructure that, you know, uh, it's, it's, it would be nice to have, but, um, you know, can't, you know, can't ask for too much where it's like, the social, the soft social stuff is like, it's just, it's the critical things that like make a society right. functioning and, and livable for most people. And so, right. And, yeah. and part of this shows too, I mean, capital and in, in, in how they're pursuing their very, very short term interests, it kind of reveals that they have, they don't have much ability or foresight or will to prevent the rise of the far right, you know, because, you know, I think, it can be realized that, you know, if we, we got to take care of some basic things to kind of think, keep things from really going off the rails uh, in this country even more. Um, and, you know, we're starting to hear the rumors swirling already about 
whether Trump will run again. I mean, if the economy is really starting to tank again, you know, those I think those fears could be become much even more realistic about what is the far right going to look like in another time of crisis. And it's like capital can't even realize that or maybe they do realize it or don't care. But, you know, they, they just can't you cannot be a reliable ally in defeating the far right. Well, in the, the business community, after the January 6th uh, Capitol riot, a lot of, you know, uh, kind of the key instruments of the business community, kind of the, the face of it, um, things like the Chamber of Commerce, came out and said, like, we're not going to be uh, donating to Republicans who uh, basically carry on with this, uh, you know, whatever, whatever this, you know, to however you want to understand this, this, like, uh, the support of the the riots, the support of Trump, the, of Trumpism, of um, kind of this defying of like the basic integrity of like democratic capitalism, um, mm-hmm. as undemocratic as our democratic capitalism is. But uh, they said, you know, we're not going to be uh, donating money to these Republicans if they keep this up. And they had to reverse that decision by March because they realized like the party is is not they they don't care like the, the republicans in office realize the only way you get reelected in this country as a republican at this point is by trumpism like right. that there there is no other option for them like politically speaking and so um that's the that's the situation where it's it's kind of these disparate elements that just cannot coexist and um and obviously, you know, the liberals just uh, taking it back to, to, you know, to where you started with this um, Luke's, P- or Luke's interview on liberals today. Um, I think to, to face all of this, to face like the power of business and the electoral, um, you know, uh, ensnarement, I guess, that, that we're in, um, it basically has to, you have to deal with basic uh, questions of, of political ownership, um, I'm sorry, of, of economic ownership of, of like who actually controls the economy. Um, right. Because there's no, it's, it's not, uh, there's no other way to, to get out of this mess. Like it's, it's been built by like the, uh, the victories of capital over labor of like the retrenchment of the work of like, of the labor movement. Um, and, uh, and this, these are all kind of the, you know, the horrible, you know, monsters that come out when, you know, you're, you're in a situation that, uh, where, you know, it's just, it's just capitalist against capitalist, just like right. capitalist competition and everyone else just getting, you know, yeah. stuck on the battlefield. Yeah. And I think it'd be interesting to see how, how moments like this accelerate certain trends, you know, I mean, and I'm thinking about automation for example and, you know in one way sometimes i get annoyed by the way people talk about automation because like they can't get out of this mode of thinking about it like a sci-fi movie you know and it, and it gets too too over the top i mean since the late 60s they've been talking about robots taking over the world and you know it's not going to happen like that but having said that automation is real it's becoming more and more of a problem um and you know some companies have taken this time during covid i mean and used that to accelerate automation, which is going to have very long-term effects on employment. Um, and, and that was going to be increasing anyway, whether COVID was here or not. So I think it's like we've been, you know, now that things are, when things lift from COVID, we're going to, it's almost like a kind of a new world is going to be revealed a little bit full of contradictions. Um, and, you know, and again, it's like, are 
most liberals willing to face those contradictions head on or pretend to be living like in a past that is no longer no longer here anymore. Yeah. And well, and, and the other thing with automation is just that it's I think part of the problem is when it's treated as kind of this autonomous process that, um, you know, it just yeah, it, it is like a sci fi movie where, it, you know, the um, the creatures from Mars have brought down automation onto all of us. And now, you know, we're stuck with this, this awful process and it'll come and it'll go, you know, we'll see it every few years, but, um, like it, it just is the automation is it's the name of the game and in the system where it's, you know, companies necessarily at war with other companies. And the only way that you get a leg up, the only way that you make a profit is by uh, relatively, you know, uh, being more competitive of having, um, you know, of cheapening your inputs, of maximizing your your profits, um, and having greater technology or, or, or technical means in order to accomplish right. that. And so it's like that's just it's here. It's always been here. Um, and again, to like to really deal with it, you're going to have to deal with like the basic questions of you know just unrestrained capitalist competition um right. on that note actually uh i can jump off speaking we of can... unrestrained capitalist competition <laughs> we have competition can... for hosts that's right um <laughs> one and only the dearly missed ariella thornhill is back Welcome, hey guys ariella. it's been a while <laughs> it's funny because whenever somebody says unconstrained capitalist competition i appear Right. Yeah. It's kind of like, like that's where I've been all these months. Right. Like the we Kool-Aid, just, we... Kool-Aid guy when he bursts in the room. But you're <laughs> yeah, like that exactly. for that. Yeah. Yeah. For if, unrestrained if, capitalist competition. If only right. we were just not talking about unrestrained capitalist competition enough. That's yeah, the, that's that's all true. that's been holding you back. I've been over at the Financial Times, The Economist. They've been saying it a lot. Mm. <laughs> I, I saw that you have a new like Wall Street Journal podcast. Um, yep, cool. yeah, called Unrestrained Capitalist <laughs> Competition. <laughs> yeah, I'm a libertarian now. <laughs> well, I'm gonna dip, but good seeing you. <laughs> yeah, you too. Bye, Kale. Well, again, welcome back, Ariella. Um, do you want to take us to our, our first guest? Yeah, um, we're going to be talking to Jenny Brown. She is the author of Without Apology and Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. And I wanted to talk to her today about Senate Bill 8, which is the Texas anti-abortion bill that bans abortion after six weeks. So people are justifiably outraged by this. Um, we've seen a lot of responses Um, the kind of more mainstream liberal response, the socialist response. But I think people feel like this is the start of some extreme restrictions and a backslide for progress for people in America. Um, So thank you so much for joining us, Jenny. It's great to be here. Um, You are our go-to when we think about this issue because your books cover the gamut um, from from all perspectives of reproductive rights not just the fight for healthcare rights with abortion, but the fight for reproductive rights in general and the ways in which um, deprivation in other areas affect people's choices in terms of family planning or sexuality and sexual health. So thank you so much for coming. Um, the first question that I'd like to start with is, um, can you 
go into what Senate Bill 8 is. How similar is that to other GOP strategies? And what does it mean for left electoralism? Yeah, well, um, Senate Bill 8 is basically... um, a, it's basically a standard six-week abortion ban. Several states have passed these. They always get jammed up in the courts. Um, but Texas came upon the ruse of making it um, illegal to get an abortion after six weeks, which is basically 85% of abortions are after six weeks because you mm-hmm. m- mostly don't know that you're pregnant. Yeah, it's extremely b- difficult. Before that. And sometimes um, the tests don't register a pregnancy test may not even register right. the amount of hormone um, in the body that indicates that a pregnancy has happened at that time. Yeah. So basically it's making abortion illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but Texas came upon this ruse of making it illegal, but then they are leaving the enforcement up to private citizens who can basically sue the hell out of anyone that they suspect of providing assistance to get an abortion that's after six weeks. So, um, no, I don't think anyone thought this would hold up in court. It was just part of this strategy to have more pressure um, on the Supreme Court to weaken abortion rights. But then, the surprise, surprise, the Supreme Court, with, with actually Chief Justice Roberts dissenting, actually allowed the law to go into effect. And now it's going to be debated in lower courts. Um, but meanwhile, uh, if you're in Texas and you need an abortion, it's going to be really difficult. So that's the situation right now. Yeah, and uh, a, a lot of people who are providers at clinics in neighboring states have said that they're already seeing what they call abortion refugees going to other states um, that have their own restrictions because this has been weakened across the United States and trying to get this care that they desperately need. Um Can you tell us about the sort of liberal strategy to protect abortion rights and how that may differ from how they've been won historically? Well, the traditional liberal approach, um, to some degree, it's been a reliance on the courts to hold back the worst of this tide of restrictions that have been coming out of um, right-wing state legislatures. Um, I think we could say that uh, last week was the expiration date of that strategy. Um, And then the other thing is that leaders of the nonprofits that dominate the movement, and you think of Planned Parenthood and NARAL, for example, um, they have tended to sort of go for a respectability politics, which is like emphasizing the worst cases, you know, rape, when a pregnancy threatens your life or health. This is not why most people get abortions. They get them because they don't want to be pregnant and bear a child. So um, so basically, it's not really appealing to the vast majority of people who need abortion rights. Um, and it, it's interesting to look at the history, the strategy of the 1960s movement that won us the rights we have actually went in exactly the opposite direction. Um, hmm. there, there were laws to help in extreme cases that have been considered like since the forties and they were going nowhere when the women's liberation movement came on the scene and basically demanded uh, free abortion for anybody who wanted one without any restrictions at all. And what that meant was it really appealed to a lot of people who, uh, who needed abortion rights and and weren't going to be affected by the rape, incest, life of the mother type strategy. So, so I think we need a strategy that unites 
everybody who's affected by the abortion law, not just a strategy of let's help a few individuals. Um, now, as things have gotten more dire, there have been some advances. And I think that a more bold approach is taking hold. And it it's seen some um, results. New York, Illinois, California, several other blue states have basically gotten rid of their pre-row anti-abortion laws. So even if the Supreme Court um, gets rid of of the Roe standard, they will still have um, uh, abortion rights in those states. So I think I think there that that we are now seeing um, seeing the end of a of one strategy and the beginning of another one, which is to be a lot more bold. Yeah, and you talked about how the uh, strategy was to actually broaden the tent and essentially say all manner of women get abortions. Um, in fact, I think some studies show that a majority of married women, of, of those who get abortions, a majority of them already have children or are already married. Um, it's not just some worst case scenario that we have to protect. It is a healthcare right. And I've seen a lot of response to this, uh, to Senate Bill 8, or yeah, to Senate Bill 8 that sort of frames... Um, frames things as a kind of deliberate attack on women, an anti-women move, forgetting the fact that we live in a country where no person is guaranteed health care of any kind. We live in a country, the same country that denies women abortions is the country that denies children insulin. It's the same country that forcibly sterilizes refugees. It's the same country that essentially on both sides uses medical care and resources as a lever for power. So I wanted to talk to you about the left position. You know, we often wage wars of rhetoric, um, but this is an issue along with healthcare access in general that requires solidarity. This is not just, some people have pointed out, men get women pregnant, why aren't men part of this? Why aren't men being penalized? That's not the world that we want. We don't want a world in which we require men to get vasectomies and have them reversed if they want to have kids. We want a world where anyone who wants a vasectomy can get one and it's free. We want a world where anyone who wants an abortion can get one and it's free. And we're kind of uh, siloing the conversation about abortion when we reduce it to a, an issue of um, the sentiment of those who are denied access, when in fact we live in a country where most people are denied access to healthcare. So I wanted to talk to you about the, the kind of way of reframing that issue for people, a way that we can say, as the fight changed, as you just said, that we actually are all subject to the same resource war and we are all on the same side of it. Yeah, I mean, the main thing to understand about abortion rights is that it's not really about punishing women for having sex, which has been the theory since the 60s. It's really about the political economy of who has the kids, who is going to pay for that. And mm -hmm. um, there's a general agreement across the establishment that the birth rate should go up. The birth rate mm -hmm. right now in the U.S. is the lowest it's ever been. We, my group became aware of this acutely in 2003 when we were trying to get um, the morning after pill, which is after sex contraception, over mm -hmm. the counter. 
the Democrats did not want to make this available. Um, President Obama said he didn't want his young daughters to access it. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, it seemed like contraceptives were under attack from every angle. But when we looked at the history, contraceptives and abortion have always been attacked at the same time. It's not about sympathy for embryos or anything. It's really about making sure that we do the unpaid work of bearing and raising the workforce. Um, Mm -hmm. So when abortion and contraception were first made illegal nationally in 1873 with the Comstock law, it was clearly because they were concerned that married women were evading the responsibilities of large families by getting abortions or using contraception. And really, it I think there's been a distortion of feminist understanding of this because after World War II, there was a baby boom. And suddenly for about 20 years, for the first time in history, there was a panic among the ruling class about overpopulation. Um, and they were worried that might encourage communism and, you know, that all these hungry people would would uh, overthrow their governments. That mm-hmm. ended, that, that whole panic ended in the early 70s, um, but not before the feminist movement managed to win legal abortion in the U.S. And and we were able to leverage the fact that it was illegal behind the, uh, that abortion had become legal behind the Iron Curtain, um, you know, where there was supposedly no freedoms, right? Except that that here we were arrested if we got abortions and there you could go to a hospital to get them. So um, by by the 1980s, the panic about high birth rates has had turned into a panic about low birth rates. And this has been the theme for the establishment and their think tanks ever since. They are worried that without population growth, the economy will stagnate. They use Japan as an example um, Mm -hmm. where, where the workforce and actually the total population is now decreasing because of a low birth rate. Mm -hmm. Um, They worry that employers will have to pay the costs um, of retirees, basically, unless people are forced to have large families that will take care of them when they're old. You know, gosh, how can we, they even talk about how can we cut social security um, if, you know, if people don't have larger families that we can then force them to depend on. Um, And, but they all, they all want to get the birth rate up, obviously, without employers having to pay for paid leave, without having to pay for childcare, without, um, healthcare guarantees or decent wages. So they're trying to figure out how to do that. And um, this is where it's connected to everything else. Like one solution has been immigration. Let's import workers. And as they, you know, proudly say, raised on someone else's nickel. Um, but even that's not enough to deal with the current lowest ever birth rates that we have seen mm-hmm. in the United States which are due to the abysmal lack of support for child rearing that we experience. I mean, we don't even have guaranteed health care when we want to give birth, never mind mm-hmm. taking care of ourselves or our children afterwards. So um, we've seen, I mean, there is a split in right now in the ruling class. I think we've seen some moves to make it easier to have kids. Like, for example, the child allowance that's been put in for the pandemic and they're, you know, we're going to have to struggle to make that permanent. Um, but the main thing that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years has been increasingly making it harder to get birth control and abortion. Um, and then we have sex ed that doesn't tell you anything except, you know, just say no. So that's the context we're operating here in here. You know, like the demand of capitalism for more births is really what is at the root of all of this. 
And so it's really an extension of the neoliberal project to push all of the costs of that back into the family and onto working class people. Yeah, I think you cover that really extensively in Birth Strike, which is a great exploration into a broader type of reproductive rights. Because I think sometimes the conversation can get um, hyper-focused on abortion rights, and for good reason. I mean, it's exceptionally cruel the way that these things attack women, and they always go hand in hand, just like Reagan's big black buck kind of austerity children's story. Uh, we, we see this with abortion also, where people are caricatured to be the worst potential example of why certain restrictions or laws are necessary. Um, I wanted to talk to you more about the way that the left can focus on and fight for reproductive rights in a broader sense. And you've alluded to that in a way, um, the child tax credit having a living wage, um, having affordable housing, rights to health care. How do you think we can broaden that message and say, yes, we support everyone's right to health care access, that includes abortion. We similarly support the right to all people um, to have fertility services resources and a world in which they can feel comfortable making the choice to have kids. Yeah, that's the uh, claim of the early 90s um, reproductive justice movement led by Black women um, to say, look, it's not enough to have uh, the ability to not have kids. Uh, reproductive justice also involves the ability to have kids in in safe and healthy conditions. Um, so I think there's um, there's really a natural alliance that could be made right now. Um, there's a whole pile of things that working people need that are currently being held up by the Senate filibuster, right? Um, at least that's what the Democrats have been telling us. You know, if if it weren't for the filibuster, we would have fifteen dollar minimum wage. We'd mm -hmm. have the Pro Act. We'd have um, uh, which is uh, the Pro Act would allow. Um, basically put some laws on the side of workers trying to organize a union. Uh, and now, um, you know, voting rights laws, which are being held up, which, you know, also are important for, for mm -hmm. throughout the South. I'm from Florida. We are, we desperately need voting rights laws so that we can actually have a little bit more democracy and now, mm -hmm. and now abortion rights. Right. So, um, there's a bill in Congress, which has been introduced, I think since 2013, called the Women's Health Protection Act. And this bill would just stop states from restricting abortion before what they call viability, which is around 23 weeks. It's not everything we want, but basically what it would do is codify the Roe decision, um, which the Supreme Court seems ready to, to ignore. So, you know, Democrats could have presumably passed this any one of the many times they've been in majority for the last 48 years mm -hmm. since the Roe decision. But I think now we really have a chance to demand it. Um, this bill has 48 Democratic co-sponsors. Um, so the, the two holdouts are Joe Manchin, uh, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey. So, um, you know, even even Kirsten Cinema is, is uh, signed onto the bill. And then no Republicans have signed on, but Susan Collins of Maine mm -hmm. and Lisa Murkowski in Alaska no nominally support abortion rights. They say they're pro-choice. So I think pushing Congress on that is a top priority 
Um, and we can unite with everybody else who is trying to get rid of the filibuster. Um, and, you know, I think some, I, I think some feminists have been squeamish about calling for an end of the filibuster. And, I, you know, I've even heard uh, people in my group say, well, but then when the Republicans get back in, they'll be able to pass anything. Well, there's nothing to stop mm -hmm. the Republicans when they get back in from blowing up the filibuster and the way the Republican Party sounds right now. I'm sure that that's what they will do the first moment they get in. So, um, mm -hmm. so you know, the Democrats really need to be pushed on this. And and um, as viewers of this show know, the Democrats are not always doing doing what they say they're going to do. Um, so obviously, it's up to us to make sure that that we push that. And there's um, there are marches on the abortion question planned for every state on October 2nd, which is right before the Supreme Court goes back into session. Um, if people are interested in that, they can go to womensmarch.com and sign up for that. Um, and then, of course, as you said, we have to remember the right to have an abortion doesn't mean anything if you don't have the money to get one. So um, that's why we need the Medicare for All Act, which mm -hmm. would cover all the reproductive options, including abortion and free birth control, which would, I think, would really be a great selling point for, for a lot of young people. So um, so that's how we can, I think that's a way that we can um, really unite and push forward a whole range of working class uh, necessities that we need right now. Yeah, we are all living under the umbrella of a power structure that will manipulate us by, you know, denying us access to resources. That includes healthcare, and abortion is the kind of most uh, visible place in which that happens. But the the fissures are becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. And I think the time to unite, just like you said, is right now. Uh, this is not going to go away. The GOP has been not only pushing how far they can go restricting abortion access, but really pushing how far they can go in implementing laws that are directly against the majority of their constituents' wishes. And that's the other side of the situation in Texas. You have uh, this rollback of abortion rights at the same time as this uh, attack on voting rights, which was just passed by the governor. And... This is not what the majority of people want there. It's not what the majority of the people in the, in the United States wants. And, and so we see the way that these issues illuminate the kind of misogynistic roots in the country, the ways in which we are, you know, being pushed towards the aims of capital. But they also show that our political apparatus is experimenting with ever more ways to do exactly what we don't want to happen. So where do you see our power uh, in the in the short term on the left? You've talked about the protests that are happening. You've talked about um, some of the strategies to kind of create coalitions. Uh, what do you think are the next steps in the next few years with this issue? Well, there are a couple of really interesting things going on with abortion right now. And one is that the um, there's a move to free up the current red tape around the abortion pill, so medication abortion. And um, right now we're in an interesting situation because of the pandemic. So the Food and Drug Administration has basically said that they are not going to enforce the rules that they have right now around getting, um, getting the abortion pill, which currently 
require that you get it in person from a practitioner, which um, so and and they are um, considering, I believe they're supposed to come back with a decision by November 1st. My experience with the FDA is that that could easily turn into like February 9th. But um, mm-hmm. they, they're supposed to decide whether to make those rules permanent. And what that means is that in a lot of states, you can go online, um, talk to a provider uh, by phone and receive the pills in the mail the next day. For example, the website abortionondemand.org um, basically provides abortion pills for considerably less than a clinic abortion at um, $239. Um, and then um, because that is, you know, pill abortions being sold that way may undermine independent clinics, they are giving 60% of their profits to independent abortion clinics so that that clinical abortions will continue to be available. Um, they uh, There's also a clearinghouse called plancpills.org, which um, has current information on where, if you are not in a state where telemedicine is, is for abortion is currently legal, you can still get abortion pills in the mail, um, primarily from this, this group, Women on Web, started a, a another section of it's called aid access they're trying to protect themselves legally mm. um from from the long arm of the of US prosecutors but anyway mm-hmm. they basically uh, you can consult with them and they will mail you the pills from overseas so um that that uh possibility i think is um is opening up a, a lot of new questions around how we can organize for for abortion rights. Um, I mean, the main thing to remember is that the courts didn't give us abortion rights, right? We organized for them and we took them. And in fact, when the Supreme Court made the Roe decision, it was partly forced by the worry that some states would soon have no abortion laws at all because they'd be successfully challenged. And that's actually the current situation in Canada. The law was vacated and there was no law to replace it. So in the long term, what we want is no special laws uh, against against abortion or or really concerning abortion. It's just another medical procedure. Um, and that's the way the law should should be treating it. So that's that's, I think, our long term goal right now. Um, the Women's Health Protection Act is the closest we can get to that because it basically says to the states, you can't make these these restrictive laws. So I think it's a good it's a good thing to unite around and then it requires us to unite with all of the other parts of the movement which um which are trying to get rid of the filibuster and and you know really push forward a whole raft of legislation that um that could help working people in all these different ways that we've been talking about. Um of course that requires the democrats to be either have, to have a real fire lit under them um which is obviously what what we're all trying trying to do at this moment thank you so much for that um i think you've given people some really practical resources there which i'm glad we can stream on the show for anyone who needs it and some um good directions for us to go in in the future thanks again for joining us jenny thanks great to be here love to have you back great take care (laughs) Bye. 
Funnily enough, you can hear my baby in the background uh, of that interview. He's chiming in. He's got some opinions about Texas. <laughs> you know, I, was, I said this on a, another show recently. Um, you know, it's amazing. It's easy to get very complacent about rights that have been won in the past. And, you know, I think mm. it's like, oh, surely they can't go as far as overturn Roe v. Wade. Surely they can't do this. And I think it'd be hard to imagine the Civil Rights Act getting overturned or voting rights. But it's like... it. None we these... saw voting rights get overturned. Right. And they like... solved racism, though, Paul. You're forgetting yeah, that. So, <laughs> But it's like need it. none, none of these things are, you know, it's never inevitable that whatever we've won in the past, we will keep, you know, like we, mm-hmm. we always have to organize for them. And it's easy to just like take certain things for granted, you know, um, and imagine that it can never be different. Yeah, absolutely. And we're also up against very, very well-funded enemies, right. um, people who have entire think tanks and teams looking at U.S. law, looking at, um, you know, ways in which they can manipulate the voting public and creating a, like long-term detailed strategies. That is what we're up against. We we are in a resource war for healthcare, for water, for food, for wages, for housing, but also for strategy. Yeah. And I think that it's important to make that clear. I love Jenny's books because they take that broad perspective and they show exactly how each one of these things was implemented, how the fight was won, you know, what the strategy was on either side. And, you know, we've got a lot to learn from that, from the people that got us those rights in the past. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of, um, well, people we can learn from, um, I am a little <laughs> jealous. You got to uh, interview Chomsky. Um, again, for our listeners, this is a pre-recorded interview, but um, anything you want to say by way of um, introduction? Well, we didn't have enough time to cover everything Jen and I wanted to speak with him about, but um, I think that everybody was stunned by the images coming out of Afghanistan and looking for some perspective on the situation there um, and what the future holds with U.S. imperialism. And we focused a lot on Afghanistan, but it's important to remember that this is just happening globally. And I think he really drew that perspective into the interview. I also think that um, we have seen the devastating effects that this has had domestically. We've seen the devastating effects that this has had on soldiers um, but we talk very little about what Afghanis are owed by the United States for getting into this war. Um, and I think a lot of people on either side are actually wondering how we can help and what we can do. But I think uh, along with that, we have to take this lesson as hard as we possibly can to prevent similar destruction in the future. Um, and, uh, when we spoke with Noam Chomsky, he was very clear that this is just U.S. imperialism since the day the country was founded. Uh, and we have a lot of work to do, but we've won, we've won some fights. Maybe we didn't think we did. So on that note, I guess we can roll the interview. Yeah. We're now joined by Professor Noam Chomsky. He's Professor Emeritus of Linguistics at MIT and the author of many books on politics and U.S. foreign policy, including Fateful Triangle, Deterring Democracy, Hegemony or Survival, and the collection 9-11. He also has a piece forthcoming in Jacobin's sister publication, Catalyst, titled An Era of Impunity is Over. 
Professor Chomsky, welcome to The Jacobin Show. Thanks to be with you again. So, Professor, we're approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11, um, which, of course, means that there are now adults in the U.S. who were not yet born when 9-11 happened. And I think when you add to that the fact that Obama ended the war on terror, at least on paper, and then, of course, last week, Biden officially withdrew all troops from Afghanistan and officially ended the war, um, I suppose the question is, do you think we've arrived at the end of an era? Or perhaps more specifically, do you think that we're witnessing the end of American empire or at least some kind of new stage? I think it'll have practically no effect on U.S. imperial policy. Uh, If you look at the massive commentary on, uh, of course, which is pouring out, It's almost entirely about what was the cost to us, okay? find virtually nothing about what was the cost to Afghans. There are a few interesting articles which are appearing showing that what the press understood very well 20 years ago was what we're ridiculing was in fact correct, namely that there was no reasonable basis for the war in the first place, that uh, the Osama bin Laden, they aren't saying it. He was a suspect when they started bombing. Well, if there's a suspect who you want to apprehend, uh, you carry out a small police operation uh, probably with the cooperation of the Taliban, who were eager to get rid of them, but couldn't just throw them out for simple reasons of tribal tribal, uh, policy. But they would have probably cooperated. Uh, They could have apprehended him, uh, then worked to try and find out if he was actually responsible, which they didn't know. In fact, that was conceded many months later. I think it was eight months later that uh, Robert Mueller, head of the FBI, gave his first extensive press conference in which he said, "We this is after probably the most intensive investigation in the world, international investigation, said that we assume that Al-Qaeda and uh, bin Laden were responsible for 2011, but we haven't able to establish it yet. That was eight months later. So first you bomb, and uh, then you look and see if there's any reason. We now know it's now being conceded that the Taliban had in fact surrendered, meaning that, uh, of course, bin Laden would have been handed over. But Rumsfeld proudly announced, we do not negotiate surrenders. We're going to smash you to pieces. Uh, They asked that uh, their terms were that uh, the leading figures in the Taliban be allowed to live with dignity. Why not? They hadn't done anything. Uh, The story was they had uh, harbored a terrorist. We don't do that. I mean, we harbor some of the worst war criminals in modern times. 
including people who are recognized to be terrorists, like Orlando Bush, Correa uh, Posada, Cuban terrorists living, who were living happily in uh, Florida under U.S. protection. There's no question. Nobody doubted they were terror. They were responsible for, among other things, the bombing of a Cuban airliner in which 70 or 80 people were killed. It's called terrorism if someone else does it. If we do it, it's fun and games. Uh, so there was no reason not to allow them to live in dignity, uh, except for what was explained right away in October by the most prominent figure of the anti-Taliban Afghan resistance, Abdul Haq. He was interviewed by a highly regarded Middle East, uh, Central Asia specialist, Anatoly Yevin, in the British press. He was asked, his response to the invasion was, he bitterly condemned it, as did other Afghan anti-Taliban activists. He said, the Americans just want to show their muscle and scare everyone. Uh, they'll kill a lot of Afghans. They'll undermine our efforts to overthrow the Taliban from within. He outlined ways that could do that, which is indeed what happened. He was soon killed by the Taliban. Uh, but uh, he said the Americans don't care. They just want to, as he said, show their muscle. Well, that's pretty much uh, Rumsfeld's position at the time. We're not going to negotiate surrender. We're going to show we can attack and destroy defenseless people. That's what we're good at. Uh, now it's being conceded in the press. They knew it at the time. I was writing about it at the time. You didn't have to be a genius. Uh, okay. Anybody who was pointing it out, either they ignored or ridiculed. Now they're conceding that it was correct. Okay. Is that the end of the empire? No, it's just saying, look, uh, we did something that was too costly to us. So now we'll do things better. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on that because you've mentioned in other interviews that a lot of the framework that people use to understand withdrawal from Afghanistan is comparing the cost of the war to potential domestic spending for social welfare programs or other things that could benefit Americans. Um, you've obviously pointed out that this is a moral issue that we owe Afghanistans after decades of destroying their infrastructure, decades of murder, decades of terror. What's a better framework to talk about ending U.S. military campaigns? And as a follow-up, what do we owe Afghanis um, as we withdraw? And, and what can the left do to put pressure on the U.S. government to make sure that we are in some way repairing the vast amounts of destruction that have happened there? Well, there are some concrete things. Oh, you're right about the framework. That's the way it's discussed. And it's true that the war, the crazy war spending in general, uh, $780 billion war Pentagon budget, is first of all endangering us very much. And it's also taking away resources that are badly needed for other purposes. 
continent quite apart from uh, Afghanistan. So that point is correct, but that's not the framework for looking at what happens when we attack and destroy other countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen right now, whole long list. Yes, we're responsible for doing something to try to help them uh, escape from the wreckage for which we are substantially responsible. There are concrete things. Uh, one is we should be admitting Afghan refugees, no bureaucratic hassles, no uh, putting them off in some other place. Uh, they should be treated decently. And incidentally, that's not the whole story. There are plenty of people right now, not very far from where I live in Tucson, who are still escaping the ravages of the Reagan's brutal terrorist wars in Central America. They're fleeing from the wreckage. What do we do? Uh, we block them. We, we bribe Mexico to keep them from ever reaching our borders. Uh, we, uh, when they get here, we stick them in what amounts to concentration camps. We refund, don't have to go through the details, you know, better than I do. Well, okay, not hardly the way to deal with the crimes that we've committed. Uh, most of the turned for a while, maybe still, the plurality of the refugees were coming from Honduras. That's a reflection of President Obama and Hillary Clinton's uh, recognition of the military junta, which overthrew a mildly reformist government. The U.S. was probably alone in that. The coup was denounced all over. Uh, Clinton and Obama wouldn't call it a coup because that meant we'd have they'd have to stop funding the military that was that was throwing out the government and turning Honduras into one of the murder capitals of the world around a fake election, which everyone denounced. Obama, Clinton praised it as an important step to democracy. Now people are fleeing. So what do we do? Well, take a look at the border. That's what we do. So yes, it's much more than Afghans. Second thing we should do is put an end to this disgraceful program of putting sanctions on Afghanistan. I don't like the Taliban. You don't like them, but that's no reason for punishing Afghans. They need the humanitarian aid badly. It's Afghan people who are starving, not the Taliban leaders. Sanctions in general, very generally, uh, punish the population, not the leadership. That was true of the sanctions on Iraq, sanctions on Iran, on Cuba, on Venezuela. Uh, it's just a way of punishing the people. We actually know the reasons. They're sometimes even announced. So in the case of Cuba, which is one of the worst atrocities of the modern world, the U.S. began back in 1960 to punish Cubans, Cubans, not the leadership, for the reason that was explicitly stated by State Department representatives, they recognized that then Castro was had a lot was very popular, and the only way to overthrow the government uh, was to foment discontent among the population, make life so impossible that people would 
overthrow the government. Of course, it wasn't the only way. Kennedy also launched a major terrorist war, uh, which practically brought the world to nuclear disaster in 1962, uh, speak of harboring terrorists. Uh, then, uh, uh, but the sanctions then aren't designed. They were intensified by Clinton when Cuba was in a desperate position after the Russians pulled out. Uh, Clinton outflanked Bush from the right to increase the sanctions so as to starve the population and beat them into submission so they'll overthrow the government. That's exactly what's going on now. Uh, okay, so incidentally, the United States is the only country in the world that can impose sanctions. And the sanctions are third-party sanctions. Everyone has to obey them. Or else they get tossed out of the international financial system. U.S. is alone in the world in the capacity to do that. Major form of state terrorism. Uh, case of Afghanistan coming along is another one. We should unblock the IMF and World Bank funding. They're, they're blocking funding, of course, under U.S. pressure. Uh, that should be stopped. We should make every possibility for the Taliban to somehow, and the population to somehow solve their own problems in whatever way they can, not a good way. Uh, we've, there might have been, there would have been better ways, I think, starting back, actually starting back in late, uh, not the late 1980s. For example, it's touching to see the uh, concern for women's rights now. Everybody's concerned with women's rights. How wonderful and touching. And what happened in the late 1980s when the Russians had a regime in place, the Najibullah regime, which was protecting women's rights? The women were going to university, wearing whatever clothes they want. They did have problems. The problems were the US backed Islamic maniacs like. Gobadin Hekmatyar, who were throwing acid in the faces of women with the wrong clothes. Well, that was the late 80s. Actually, that was written about by very credible people. Russell Basu, leading international feminist, woman who organized the International Year of Women in 1974. She was the UN Rapporteur for Women's Rights in Afghanistan. She wrote articles about this, sent them to US journals, wouldn't publish them. Even Ms. Magazine wouldn't publish them. Wrong story, you know. We're not supporting women's rights now. So, because it was a Russian-run regime. Now, we're concerned with women's rights. Yes, very moving. I want to follow up on that because, um, you know, as you were just alluding to, I think when Biden announced the withdrawal of troops, there was suddenly this wave of media commentary, uh, you know, 
talking, as you said, about women and girls and what kind of fate they might face under the Taliban, um, you know, uh, uh, talking about how there was almost certainly going to be a humanitarian uh, crisis in Afghanistan following the withdrawal. And as you pointed out, I think that if there's anything the last 20 or more years have taught us, it's to be, it's that we should be critical or suspicious, at least, of this idea of so-called humanitarian intervention. Um, And I've also noticed a lot of progressives even saying, or invoking the pottery barn rule, which is you break it, you buy it, right? And I think the idea is that they don't feel that it's right for the U.S. to create this disaster in Afghanistan and then just pack up and leave. Um, So in, in light of all of this commentary, I'm wondering if there are other humanitarian projects that you think progressives should be supporting that uh, aside from, you know, ending sanctions and uh, admitting more refugees that don't fall into this trap of continuing the intervention? Well, first of all, I should say that I'm sure there are people on the ground in Afghanistan who really are committed to human rights, to rights of women, rights of others, uh, but they're not the policy makers. Mm-hmm. That's always true. There are plenty of good people who are working on the ground, just as there were under the Russian intervention. Good people working on the ground, concerned with women's rights, concerned with human rights, uh, didn't justify the invasion, but that was happening. But we're talking about policy, not mm-hmm. good people who are trying to do something. Uh, The first step in humanitarian intervention is to stop destroying. If we can stop destroying, terrorizing, using our muscle to intimidate everyone, whatever the consequences, that'll be a big step forward. Then if we can get that far, you can start thinking what we can do that might be of some value. And there are things. So take George W. Bush, who was responsible for the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq that followed later, millions of people killed, countries destroyed, the whole region uh, wrecked through uh, uh, ethnic conflict that didn't exist before. But he did some good things. His uh, uh, health programs in Africa, for example, were quite helpful. And uh, Okay, fine, that's humanitarian intervention, support some health programs in Africa. Uh, We could carry out a humanitarian program right now by making vaccines available to Latin America, Caribbean, uh, Africa, Asia. Actually, the U.S. is doing a little better than Europe is on this. Europe is even worse than us in many respects. Biden has at least taken some small steps, but not the major steps, the steps called for by the people's vaccine movement, freeing up the the exorbitant intellectual property rights, patent rights that not only patent the product, but also the process, something new introduced by Clinton and other neoliberal fanatics in the uh, World Trade Organization rules, radical violation of free trade, never existed in the past, ridiculous rights that uh, support uh, huge profits for drug monopolies. Oh, well, we can eliminate that. 
allow other countries to manufacture the vaccines, which were mostly created on public funding anyway. Let other countries uh, investigate them. Their own engineers can probably figure out better processes than the drug companies have, make them available to, to the countries that need them. You could do that. As I say, Europe's even worse than we are, but that's no justification. But that would be humanitarian intervention. Uh, I mean, eliminating, I'll take, say, Cuba, one of the worst atrocities of the modern age. The whole world literally is opposed strongly to what we're doing. Last vote at the UN was 184 to 2. Israel has to go along with the US because it's client state. They do what we say. Nobody else would. Does it make any difference? Does it even get reported? I mean, just tighten the grips, you know, to make it, to punish them. Punish them for standing up to us for what the State Department back in the 60s called successful defiance of U.S. policies going back to the Monroe Doctrine in the 1820s. We're not going to let anybody get away with that. You make up all sorts of stories about human rights, if you like. There are human rights abuses in Cuba. In fact, some of the worst in the hemisphere. They're taking place in the southeast corner of Cuba, a place called Guantanamo, which the U.S. Yeah. took at gunpoint, refuses to give back. Probably the worst human rights, certain way beyond any human rights in Cuba, maybe in the hemisphere. Okay, so yes, let's stop violating human rights viciously in places we've stolen from Cuba at gunpoint and maintain because it holds a major port and it prevents Cuban development and therefore harms the Cuban people. So maybe they'll overthrow their government. Okay, we can stop all of that. That'd be humanitarian uh, intervention. You can look around the world and find endless things like that. Uh, actual humanitarian intervention, it barely exists. There's a lot of scholarship on this, incidentally. And it's try. It's very, I've reviewed a lot of it. It's very hard to find an authentic case of humanitarian intervention. Of course, every great power interaction is called humanitarian. That's universal. When uh, Hitler invaded Poland, it was to protect people from the wild terror of the Poles. In fact, if we had records from Attila the Hun, it would probably be humanitarian. Okay, but we can put that aside. Look at the actual cases. Really hard to find an authentic one in the entire historical record. States are not uh, moral agents. It's more they act for the interests of their own dominant classes, overwhelmingly. You can find a few exceptions here and there, like uh, uh, Bush's uh, uh, health program in Africa. But really have to look hard. Yeah, the... Um case that you were making about humanitarian intervention by um, freeing the patents and allowing foreign governments to make the vaccine. 
is particularly interesting in light of the fact that the U.S. was running a fake vaccination program in Pakistan to try to get information about Osama bin Laden. And it undermined real humanitarian efforts to give people medical care. And so you see that there are a few wings of U.S. imperialism. One is financial, one is military might, and the other is medical care. And it's coming to a head during the pandemic in a horrifying way because you you have a government that has systematically undermined the trust of its medical facilities and medical interventions domestically and abroad. And now is the moment when the United States could be poised to actually do good on a mass scale with the vast amounts of wealth and privilege and resources this country has. And even if it were to do that, it's hard to think that these other countries could trust those efforts after years and years and years of this uh, kind of brutal bait and switch campaigning and trickery. Um, And I wanted to talk about the ways in which the U.S. media rehabilitates this image. So one particular example, I think key example from this time is George Bush, who was rehabilitated in the eyes of the liberal establishment. He started from he started out as evil incarnate, um, rushing us into a war we had no business starting, into two wars we had no business starting. Then he was turned into a kind of bumbling oaf that ran interference for like Dick Cheney, who was the mastermind behind the scenes. And now he's become a sort of lovable folksy painter, friend of Michelle Obama. Um, we've seen the media talking about how Biden uh, botched the withdrawal and and they're saying that he can't recover from this and maybe this will be a turning point in public opinion. Um, it could crush the Democrats' cho- uh, chances in later elections. But Bush has escaped, it seems, any kind of blame for his role in for his role as a war criminal. Can you talk about the way that the media um, sort of whitewashes its own recent history and also why? Why does it do that? Take Henry Kissinger, honored, one of the worst war criminals in modern history. Uh, it's hard to even uh, take, say, Cambodia. 1970, uh, Kissinger loyally followed his master, Richard Nixon, and transmitted orders of a kind that I don't think ever have appeared in the historical record. Orders to the American Air Force said, massive bombing campaign in Cambodia, anything that flies against anything that moves See if you can find an analog to that in the historical record among the Nazis, among anyone. Well, and it wasn't just words. It led to a horrendous bombing campaign, horrific bombing campaign, which turned the Khmer Rouge at the time had been a small guerrilla group, a couple thousand people. By the end of the bombing campaign, which devastated rural Cambodia, there were hundreds of thousands of enraged peasants. Well, then came 
ugly actions, which we can blame on them. Okay? But that's one Henry Kissinger. Go to India. Henry Kissinger supported the Pakistani destruction of East Bengal. Huge number of people killed, maybe a million or more. He threatened India with punishment if India dared to try to put an end to the huge slaughter. What were the reasons? Uh, he didn't want to under, he, he had a planned uh, photo op where he was going to secretly go to China and meet, you know, the Mao and shake hands and would be detente, would be very exciting. And he had to go through Pakistan to get there. And all of this slaughter was undermining his photo op. Okay, so let's kill a million Bengalis. Well, what about Chile? Kissinger was the point man pressing hard for the overthrow of the Allende government. Two tracks. One track was just straight and violence, you know, military coup. Then there was a soft track, make the economy scream, make it impossible for people to live. Okay. Well, they finally got what they wanted, instituted a vicious dictatorship, which incidentally was the first 9-11. What happened in 2001 was the second 9-11. The first one was much worse by any measure. We translate it to per capita terms, which is the right way. It would be as if on what we call 9-11, uh, 30,000 people have been killed outright. Uh, 500,000 had been tortured. Uh, the government was overthrown. A vicious dictatorship instituted uh, terror, torture, horrors, you know, celebrated not only by the, by the United States, celebrated it, uh, poured funds in to help the new dictatorship, uh, international Agencies did the same. They'd been withholding funds from Allende, poured them in. The neoliberals, people who've been running the world for the last 40 years, loved it. They moved in to advise the government. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, the moral leader of neoliberalism, visited and said he was impressed by the freedom under Pinochet said he couldn't find a single person in Chile who thought, who didn't think there was more freedom under Pinochet dictatorship than under Allende. Somehow he couldn't hear the cries of anguish from the uh, torture chambers in the Via Grimaldi and others. Well, that's the reaction to the first 9-11. I'm sure there are jihadis who are who celebrated the second 9-11. We think they're terrible. We're much worse, you know. Take a look at ourselves. Is anybody gonna talk about that on the anniversary of 9-11? Uh, maybe you will, I will. Handful of other people will be denounced, of course. But it's true.
that was the first 9-11, much worse than what happened in September uh, 2001. Uh, okay, goes on. Uh, so if you want to know what we can do, we can begin by educating ourselves, by rising to some minimal moral level so we can pay attention to what we do and what we have done. Uh, just take this notion of forever wars that's being bandied about. Uh, Biden ended the forever wars. When did the forever wars start? Well, 1783. 1783, the British pulled out. That freed the colonists from the yoke that the British had imposed. They had prevented the colonists from invading what was called Indian country, the Indian nations, to the west of the Appalachian Mountains. British had blocked that. Colonists weren't accepting that. Certainly not people like George Washington, major land speculator, wanted to go out and exterminate the Indians who we said were will disappear. They are like wolves. They will disappear like the wolves, you know. George Washington. Immediately, the colonists launched murderous, brutal wars against the Indian nations, extermination, dispersal, uh, treaties broken. I mean, every horror you can think of. They knew what they were doing. Uh, the, the, the leading figure, the intellectual. Uh, architect of Manifest Destiny, John Quincy Adams, in his later years, he lamented what he called the fate of the hapless race of Native Americans who we are exterminating with such malicious atrocities. That was long after his own contributions, major contributions to the process. And that was before the worst of it. Then it went on to California, where it was truly genocidal. Well, we finally, uh, there's a famous diplomatic history. Of, you can buy a copy of it, a well-known diplomatic history of the United States by Thomas Bailey, who discusses this. He says it was defensive. He said, after the colonists got their freedom, they turned to the task of, I'm quoting, felling trees and Indians and expanding to their natural borders. Meanwhile, picking up half of Mexico in the process, uh, robbing Hawaii from its natives. That's forever wars. The United States has been at war practically every year since it was founded. Well, there were some victims. What about asking them about the costs? They have voices. Most of them were exterminated, but there's some who are left, and they left records. So we can ask about the forever wars. Uh, nobody's going to ask that, I don't think. It's the forever wars that cost us too much. So there's a, a good article in the current issue of Foreign Affairs, one of the lead articles, Main Establishment Journal. It's about, it's called something like, the cost of the Afghan war to the United States. Yes, it's a very serious cost. 
trillions of dollars to the United States. What about the people who we've been exterminating and attacking and destroying for 250 years, ever since the country was founded? Goes on. Uh, there's an article in the New York Times today by a nice person, Samuel Moyne, good, decent guy, about how the United States is turning to more humanitarian wars. Says they're still terrible, but they're more humanitarian than before. And he gives an example George Bush's, George the first Bush, the statesman Bush, his uh, first invasion of uh, Kuwait than Iraq. He says, much more humanitarian than earlier wars. Was it? I mean, American army sank to the level as the the Iraqi army, of course, was totally overwhelmed by U.S. force as they were repeating, retreating from Kuwait. The peasant conscripts, poor conscripts, Shiite Kurdish conscripts who were conscripted by Saddam to fight the war, were trying to flee. But the American army was using bulldozers to shovel them into ditches, into ditches to suffocate them so they couldn't flee. And then, well, George Bush was orating about how uh, what we say goes. Uh, his air force was destroying completely undefended infrastructure throughout Iraq. Okay, This was incidentally a war also, which never had to be fought. There were plenty of options for diplomatic settlement. Press refused to report them. The U.S. government just dismissed them. Uh, I could tell you more details about this if there were time, but uh, could have been a war that was avoided. In fact, though this will outrage millions of people, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was not all that different from the U.S. invasion of Panama a couple of months earlier. Could go into the details. I've written about it. I wrote about it at the time. I won't review it. Uh, gone. Gone from history. Nothing, you know. Uh, how about bringing it back to history? Uh, not the way the New York Times is now running articles about what they knew 20 years ago. At the time, okay, at the time they knew that, for example, that the leading figures in the anti-Taliban resist, Afghan resistance were denouncing the invasion because the U.S. Wants, wants to show its muscle and scare everyone and doesn't care about the Afghans. They knew it. Did you see it at the time? No. People who mentioned it were simply ridiculed and denounced. Unpatriotic, not good red-blooded Americans who line up to uh, crush everyone by force because that's our metier. Nothing changed. Going back to the first question, nothing's changed. Same institutions, same doctrines, same beliefs. Of course, the world is somewhat different. One difference is the population. There's something that Samuel Moyne 
didn't understand, probably doesn't understand and didn't mention in his column this morning. He said, there is, a, there is actually an effect of more humanitarian wars. It's not coming from the professors and the academics who he referred to, who somehow are writing articles saying we should be more humane. It's not coming from them. It's coming from people like you. It's coming from people on the ground. Country has become more civilized as a result of the activism of the 60s, the aftermath. Plenty of evidence from that. Doesn't get discussed. It's not the right story. So, for example, take take the Central American Wars. It was an astonishing, horrible atrocities. Hundreds of thousands of people killed, torture, massacre, everything you can think of. But it was, there were things the U.S. couldn't do. It could not do what John F. Kennedy could do in South Vietnam 20 years earlier. They tried, but they couldn't do it. Too much opposition here. Reagan, in fact, when he came into office, tried to duplicate what Kennedy had done in 20 years earlier. It was an immediate backlash from the population. We're not accepting that anymore. In fact, what happened in Central America was something totally new in the entire history of imperialism. Can't get reported, but it was very significant. It's the first time ever that people in the aggressor country didn't just protest, but went to live with the victims. Went to live with the victims to try to help them, try to give whatever assistance a white face might give, uh, and help them in projects. People from Middle America, evangelical churches, all sorts of like, visited churches in rural America where they knew more about Central America than the academics because they were working there. And it's never happened. Nobody in France went to live in an Algerian village. Nobody in the United States went to live in a Vietnamese village. I mean, unheard of. Well, that happened in Central America. And that's the kind of thing that has changed what the U.S. government can do, not articles by academics in professional journals, but what's happening, what's been happening in activism on the ground. And that can make a difference now, too. That's what changes the world. So that actually leads really well into a question I wanted to ask you, which is that, of course, you've been active in anti-war movements since the Vietnam War. Uh, And when I think back on the anti-war movement that sprang up uh, after Afghanistan and particularly in the lead up to the Iraq War, um, I should admit I myself was a young, if not entirely effective or strategic protester during that time period. And looking back on it, it, you know, it if we look at the anti-war movement at that time and ask, did it stop the war or even slow the war or the two wars? The answer, of course, is no. But I'm wondering if you, you know, if if you think that there's something we can take away from the anti-war movement of that time period or um, what you think future anti-war movements can learn from the the time period uh, leading up to Afghanistan and Iraq. First thing they should learn is how effective they were. The common view is we failed. You look at the plans, they weren't carried out. We've just learned a couple of days ago from 
German, high-level German sources, that the Bush administration was apparently planning the use of nuclear weapons in Afghanistan. They couldn't do that. U.S. population wouldn't tolerate it. The, there were major, the Iraq war also had something new in the history of imperialism. There were massive protests, which you participated in, before the war was officially launched. In fact, the war had been going on for a long time. Back to Clinton, had been bombing Iraq. But the war was officially launched in March uh, 2003, the day before. I was, I remember my own classes at MIT. The students in the class demanded that the class be canceled so that we could all participate in the mass demonstrations before the war was officially declared. It's never happened in the history of imperialism. That was all over the place. Well, what happened in Iraq was bad enough. Could have been a lot worse if the government was, if Rumsfeld, Cheney, the rest of them were unleashed. We don't know what would have happened, but they were constrained by public opposition on the ground. That's happened over and over. We haven't, doesn't get written about. It's the wrong story, but it's the story we should recognize. So I don't think the anti-war movement was ineffective. I think it was very effective. It's what, to go back to Samuel Moyne this morning, it's the real factor that led to the very limited reduction in violence and uh, terror and destruction that we see. And the lesson is, continue it harder. Take, take the threat of nuclear weapons. It's a very serious threat, mounting, mounting significantly under Trump. Biden, so far at least, is pursuing the same policies. Well, let's look back. Uh, early 1980s, there were huge public demonstrations, probably the biggest in American history, condemning the emplacement of short-term, short-distance uh, 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 missiles in Western Germany, reach uh, Moscow with a 10-minute flight time greatly increasing the threat of war, Pershing missiles, similar protests in Europe, enormous protests. Well, that had an effect. It led Reagan to accept Gorbachev's offers for a reduction of, for elimination of uh, uh, for establishing the INF Treaty, intermediate range missiles. That was an enormous step uh, towards peace, it reduced significantly threats that could have easily led to nuclear war. Well, Trump dismantled the treaty, part of his general wrecking ball, destroying everything that has anything of value, destroyed the INF treaty, most of the rest of the arms control regime. And immediately, this was, I think, August 2019, the anniversary of Hiroshima Day to announce it, eliminate the INF Treaty, and immediately, immediately launch missiles which violate the treaty. 
saying to the Russians, come on, boys, join us. We can have fun and create new, more destructive missiles, which will destroy everything. It'll really be fun, you know. Uh, well, that, it's the it's the demonstrations of the early 80s that put some kind of limit on this. That's lessons too. They can take place now. Stop the race to disaster that's going on there. Same with climate destruction. Pressure from the population, young people mostly, has pressured Biden to put on paper programs that are not too bad, not enough, but much better than anything that appeared before on paper. Okay. Now take a look at what happens. Last week, uh, the IPCC released its latest report, very grim report, much worse than anything before. Didn't get anywhere near adequate coverage here, but it was very serious. That was on Monday. And what happened on Tuesday? On Tuesday, Biden issued an appeal to OPEC, the oil cartel, to increase production of oil because he wants gas prices to decline in the United States to improve his electoral prospects. So that's what happened on Monday and Tuesday. So nice things on paper, but there are things that happen in the world. Well, that's why activism on the ground makes a difference. Sunrise Movement activists took over Nancy Pelosi's office, got support from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, so they didn't just get thrown out. That led to an actual resolution in Congress. It's on the floor. Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey of Massachusetts have a resolution which has a very sensible program which would deal effectively with the severe threat of global destruction through environmental destruction. It's a resolution, but you have to get beyond a resolution to a legislation. That's going to take a lot of work. Republicans, of course, will be 100% opposed. Their commitment at this point is slavishly serve the corporate sector and shine Trump's boots so that the crowds he's organized don't go after you. That's the Republican Party. Doesn't matter what happens to the country or the world. 100%, no deviation. Then there's a couple of Democrats who can block anything. We know it. We know who they are. Well, that means work. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting what you said about <clears throat> the shift in strategy initially because of the pressure of the anti-war movement. I grew up in a town where there were signs, um, spray painted signs that said nuke the towel heads after 9-11, really brutal, brutal um, desire for violence. And I remember a shift happening in the rhetoric that went from kind of like blatant bloodlust to 
we're being smarter with how we fight the war. And that was a way to kind of introduce drones as a humanitarian weapon. But it was also a response to pressure from the anti-war movement that said, we're not going to sit back and watch civilian casualties in silence. We're not going to triumphantly march blindly into another war. Um, and, and so I think that there's a way in which the victories of the left get swallowed up and rehashed as an idea that came from the center or came from the right. Like, no, we are being humanitarian. We're doing targeted drone strikes now. And that's better for U.S. citizens who get to play video games that actually kill people. And it's better for Afghanis who, you know, better not go to the wrong wedding venue, essentially. So I think that it's um, imperative that we take a, a real inventory of our failures and of our victories and not allow them to get reworked by the dominant media narrative. And as um, we go into another two decades of intense change, I think we've obviously seen um, the flooding across the eastern part of the United States and, and the southeast with Hurricane Ida, the casualties from that it's bringing the truth of climate change home. We're seeing a proliferation in nuclear weapons in the United States that, like you said, has been vastly underreported. It's staggering. They're faster, swifter, smaller. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the ways in which we can talk about left foreign policy. What is left foreign policy? How do we advocate for left foreign policy? How do we keep clear-headed when we're being plied with rosy promises from bad actors? Well, you publish articles in Jacobin, and you organize people to act on what they learn. There's no secret. We know how to do it. The thing is to do it. It's been done over and over. Uh, every popular move, every major cause that's been won over the centuries has been won by people who are working on the ground. Take, say, the civil rights movement. You mentioned the civil rights movement. The name that comes to mind is Martin Luther King, who was a great figure. He deserves it. But I'm sure he would have been the first to say that he was riding on a wave that was created by people who nobody, whose names nobody knows, snake activists who were riding freedom buses through Alabama, facing threats, killing, and so on, trying to encourage a black farmer to have the courage to dare to go to a voting booth in a bitterly racist country. Okay, well, those are the people who my old friend Howard Zinn put it pretty well once. He said that what matters is the uh, countless number of unknown people who lay the basis for the changes that take place in history. He said it more eloquently, but basically that. I think that's the point. Uh, we don't even know the names of the people who've done the really significant and important work, just as we don't know the names of the people 
overseas who are struggling for their rights courageously under horrible conditions. Okay, we can help them in many ways. Uh, it's been done in the past, can be done more in the future. Now, we don't have a lot of time now. The problems are much more urgent than they were in the past. Uh, the climate problem, a couple of decades. We don't take care of it in a couple of decades, we'll pass tipping points. Uh, face the fact that the Republicans are probably going to get back into power probably next year, maybe more in 2024. That means pure denialism, 100% denialism. Let's race over the precipice as quickly as possible because it'll put a little more money in our corp in the pockets of our corporate masters. That's the Republican Party. It's going to be a big fight to try to do something about that. Not that the Democrats are so magnificent. I've talked about Biden, but at least they can be pressed. Okay. Actually, younger Republicans can too. It's not among younger Republicans, there's less of the cowardly, brutal dedication to massive destruction in the interests of private wealth. That's the older part of the Republican leadership, the Lindsey Grahams. But uh, younger people are somewhat different, and they can be reached. Okay, That can make a difference. Well, that's the goal. Thank you. You've played a massive part in that. Um, and we really owe you a huge debt of gratitude for everything and for all of the unknown names and opinions that you've brought into the public eye, as well as your own. Thank you very I just much. want to quickly mention for my part, uh, when I was a teen anti-war protester, uh, I was living much like Ariella in a very conservative state. And somehow a friend and I managed to get a copy of two books. One was Howard Zinn's Terrorism and War, and the other was, of course, your collection of interviews, 9-11. So I did not think that I would get a chance to thank you in person or just over Zoom, <laughs> but thanks very much. It, I mean, those two books were um, really foundational, I think. Thank you. Yeah, they were honored with being contraband where I went to high school. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed to take them in, which tells you a lot. <laughs> One of my achievements has been to have my books banned from Guantanamo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is the man, the myth, the legend, Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm holding a baby right now. <laughs> I gotta do the one-handed. I actually got really into watching the interview. Yeah, and I was like, oh, oh, we're back on. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that was so effective about it for me was just how he said, you know, we didn't totally fail with the anti-war movement. Right. It wasn't, we, we can't say because we didn't stop the wars, because we didn't stop America's massive military might. Uh, it was a failure. It it accomplished something, and, and we have to take stock of that, honestly. Yeah, and I think it was the last episode where we were talking with Jen about Afghanistan. And, you know, it's, it's this thing where, like, I think in many ways we are winning the battle of ideas. Like, I think the U.S. public is largely anti-war. I mean, think about how Trump was able to run kind of strange mm -hmm. on ending forever wars. Yeah. You know, it doesn't always, of course, translate to the power to stop U.S. imperialism. But I think it's good to keep in mind that we might not be winning outright, but there still is a point to us, 
you know, advocating on an anti-war basis. Yeah, we can't despair because uh, we don't get it all. Right. You yeah. know, there's a way that we can see some things shifting, you know, at the very least, maybe to shut us up, but (laughs) (laughs) that's still significant. Right. Absolutely. Well, this would be, uh, I think, a good place to wrap up. But before that, just want to thank everyone so much who put in Super Chats, uh, whether questions or comments. Thank you so much. Um, We're not going to do Labor Paul today, but still feel free to put in some Labor Paul questions as a comment on this video or in the live chat now. And we'll try to get to them next week. so thank you, Ariella, for for coming back. We all missed you. Yeah, I'm like. so glad to be back. It was hard for me seeing the show. Yeah. <laughs> Postpartum <laughs> haze watching you and Jen. I'm really glad that we get to do it again. Yeah. I feel like every other YouTube comment is like, um, where's Ariella? Um, so hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> now you know. Right. Um, so uh, this was a great show, and I look forward to seeing everyone next week. Yeah, we'll see you again soon, everyone. Thanks for watching.